This is Paul Adamson, and welcome to In Conversation, the regular podcast of my online magazine, Encompass. I chat informally with personalities from a wide variety of backgrounds on a wide variety of subjects. If you like this podcast, you can go to the magazine's website, encompass-europe.com, or any of the main platforms for free access to all the podcasts to date. I hope you enjoy this conversation. My guest is Fiona Hill. Fiona Hill is the Robert Bush Senior Fellow at the Center on the United States and Europe in the Foreign Policy Program at Brookings. She recently served as Deputy Assistant to the President and Senior Director for European and Russian Affairs on the National Security Council from 2017 to 2019. She is the author of a new book, There is Nothing for You Here, Finding Opportunity in the 21st Century. My Welcome to the podcast, Fiona, first of all. Thanks, Paul. It's great to be with you. Right. So... My first question is, um, how do you actually define and classify this book? I feel sorry for the, the booksellers. They get this book in a big box. And how, which, on which shelf do they put it? It's a memoir. It's a very personal memoir. It's a, a study on discrimination and prejudice and inequality. It's a foreign and security policy study because you are a public intellectual. So how would you describe your book? Well, actually, I'd like to describe it in all those terms because then booksellers can put it in multiple different spots around the shop, right? <laughs> you know, in Amazon, actually, I've, you know, I've seen it classified under all kinds of things, US leadership, uh, women's studies, you know, kind of women in politics. So, yeah, I mean, you're right, there's many different things um, in the book. And in fact, initially, I really toyed with, you know, was I writing two or three books or some articles, you know, rather than, than one book? Because the book... Um, uses biography, my biography um, and memoir as a through line, but that wasn't initially how I set out to write it. I was thinking about something much more thematic. I wanted to tell a kind of a, a large contextual historical story about how we got, I mean, my view from the 1980s and all of the kind of upheavals in the economy and politics in um, you know, the US uh, and, and Europe and, and, and the Soviet Union to the populist politics of today that are really kind of defining um, uh, you know, the, the political space in Europe as well as the US and obviously in, uh, in, in modern Russia. And then there was also the public policy aspect. I am at Brookings. I am the Robert Bosch Senior Fellow there. And you, know, you can take the girl out of Brookings for a while, but you can't take <laughs> Brookings out of the girl. You know, I'm paid on a daily basis to think about public policy as well as foreign policy. And obviously, there was quite a bit of pressure from um, you know, coming back to Brookings after serving in an administration to, you know, to write something that would have you know, some larger import in the public policy side. And I had you know, a few things I wanted to say. And then, of course, I did serve, as you point out, in the National Security Council during this incredibly tumultuous time um, of the Trump presidency. And, you know, I left just before the infamous phone call between President Trump and President Zelensky of Ukraine that do us a favor, you know, that could be the phone call that will kind of live on in infamy uh, that was, you know, obviously intended to kind of enlist the assistance of a foreign power and a foreign president in uh, a defamation campaign against a U.S. Uh, political candidate uh, in the form of uh, former Vice President Joe Biden and his son Hunter Biden. So there was all of that. And, you know, when I first set out to do that, uh, to, to, to write the book or think about the book, it was really a question of how do I put all of this together? And I did try it thematically at first, and that really didn't work. It was confusing, apart from for me, because it was all rattling around in my head. But for you know, the initial uninitiated reader, they were like, oh, great material, really interesting 
but where is this going? <laughs> so I, that's when I turned to doing much more of this biographical memoirist style, something that I wouldn't have normally done. But, you know, I'd done uh, books like this um, before. I'd written a kind of a contextual biography, a quasi-biography of Vladimir Putin. That was much more thematic. But as a historian, you know, I'd obviously looked at, you know, the kind of the people in their times in this historical context, looking at biography as a vehicle for talking about a larger history. And so I had to step back and think, well, actually, this is actually you <laughs> writing this about. Yeah. But how could I place myself as a, a vehicle for a story about history? And actually, it wasn't all that difficult because, you know, that period of my life from the 1960s, mid-1960s until today, there's been a lot happening. And I've had the good fortune. Sometimes it didn't feel very fortunate, but to be the witness to a lot of this history close up. Well, as you say, I mean, uh, public policy experts like you, uh, and you're an example, you write biographies of other people like Putin, but not so much autobiographies. And it just seems your your story is is quite amazing. It's, I, the more I as I progress to the book, your, your backstory, the Americans say, is quite astonishing. And as you say, you are, you are the exception that proves the rule of class of socioeconomic immobility uh, in the tw- early 21st century. You have succeeded in, against all odds in a way that many others and most other people from given your background have not. So you are, you are the success story. And, are you, and are you, do you surprise, I mean, without sounding over immodest, you, are you surprised yourself by your success? Completely. You know, I mean, I never expected to do any of the things that I'm doing now. When I started to study Russian back in 1984, which was against the backdrop of the Euro missile crisis, you know, the war scares of the 1980s, um, you know, I was persuaded because of the times that, you know, I'd um, been fortunate enough to have the opportunity to apply to college, uh, to university. And, you know, I was trying to think about what to study there. And I didn't really have a lot of clear ideas. And, you know, the times presented me with the idea of studying Russian. Because in you know 1983, you'll remember Paul and maybe some of the people listening to the podcast. That was kind of the peak of the Euro missile crisis. I mean, since the late 1970s onwards to 1987, when the INF Treaty signed, all of Europe was in tumult over the stationing of SS-20 and Pershing missiles on the respective sides of uh, the Berlin Wall and the Iron Curtain. And many people, you know, in that era were swept up in the campaign for nuclear disarmament. Actually, you know, kind of anti-nuclear demonstrations everywhere. And, you know, a lot of people like myself and, you know, perhaps like you as well, you know, growing up in the UK, there was this sort of sense of impending doom at all times, public service announcements telling you to throw yourself in a ditch if you're caught out in the middle of a a missile strike and a siren. And everybody in Britain, because Britain's so small, lived near an Air Force base with perhaps nuclear missiles there or an early warning station. And, you know, the whole popular culture was suffused with uh, songs about nuclear war and films and books and uh, you know, TV series, it just sort of seemed like the end of times. And so studying Russian, you know, when I went off to university, it was 1984, there's George Orwell's big brother. Mm. I mean, Russia was inescapable and, and Russian with the Soviet Union. But, you know, I thought I'd be a translator at best, honestly. You know, that's the whole backstory. I thought that maybe, you know, someone like me from my background, yeah, maybe I didn't think about being a professor or an academic. I just thought maybe I'd study Russian. And I tried to put that to good use and maybe I could help, you know, facilitate at some point some arms control negotiation. Maybe I could get a job at the United Nations as one of those translators, you know, sitting yeah. in a booth if I was good enough. Most likely doing from Russian to English. I mean, it would be a hard stretch, you know, to do it not in your native language, but I've seen people do it and they're amazing, you know. And I thought, well, if I work really hard and I'd, I'd shown some affinity for languages at school, I'd done French and German. I thought, you know, maybe I could, maybe I could do that. And that was kind of really the pinnacle of what I thought I would be able to achieve. 
But I want to go back even further in your childhood, Fiona, briefly, the benefit of listening. They, they, I think they'll be genuinely surprised and, and really shocked even to hear that, that, how you won this scholarship to it. You tell the story, it's your story, and how you couldn't take up the scholarship when you were 11 years old, is that right? Uh, to go to a, a, a better school, quote unquote. Yeah, I mean, Paul, we were of that generation um, that was shaped in the UK education system by the 11 plus. Um, I was actually the last in the cohort, certainly in my uh, region in the northeast in County Durham, to take the 11 plus because it was getting phased out in the 70s as the whole educational system was changing from an education with grammar schools where the kind of, you know, the students who really performed the best uh, would be able to gain a place after if they passed the 11 plus exam and were in the top, you know, kind of cohort of their schools. You know, and for uh, kids from working class backgrounds, that was the big game changer, the 11 plus and getting into a grammar school. It would be all paid for, but there was a very small number of paid places. And if you went off to a grammar school, you were set off onto basically, if you were in the working class, the middle class life, maybe professions, you know, could become, you know, maybe a solicitor, you know, kind of uh, maybe go on to university and, you know, do all kinds of other things. You know, white collar professional job, maybe, you know, on from there to... Uh, uh, you know, an elite university and even into politics and, you know, you name it. But if you didn't pass the 11 plus, you were headed off to a secondary modern or a vocational school and much more into, you know, perhaps a white collar profession, but it would be a, 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 a more difficult pathway. My mother went off to become a nurse. Um, she actually did pass the 11 plus, but there were only three paid uh, places for girls from her school. And she was number four by a narrow margin and uh, the, uh, the the results. I was in this last cohort to um, uh, take the 11 plus. I aced it and I was offered a place at a private school um, in Durham because you, you could, you know, get a full scholarship, you know, to go to the private schools if you pass the 11 plus as well. And, you know, it was a, it was a generous offer. It was all the fees paid, but my parents would have had to cover the uniforms, you know, some of uh, the travel oh, there well. back, you know, kind of on the, on the, on the bus books, you know, this kind of thing. And although there were hardship funds and I could also buy my uniform secondhand and a neighbor offered to drive me, we still couldn't afford um, all of the other things that would have been left, left, left there. My parents were just really scraping by at that point. My parents just said, look, you can't go. I mean, this is, you know, a great opportunity, but you'll just have to look for another one. And, you know, that was kind of, um, yeah. I mean, at the time, I actually look back and think, actually, I was quite fortunate because you know, I don't know what I would have been doing, but probably not this either. And, you know, some of the girls from my school did go off uh, to the, the private school and do very well. But, you know, I, I, I don't see much, you know, a sign of them anymore because, you know, once you go on that path, yeah. you kind of lose sure. the connections yeah. with everybody Absolutely. else you're growing up in the neighborhood. And, and some of the people I was really friendly with in my elementary school, they passed the 11 plus and went on to the private schools and never saw them again. Yeah. Yeah. That happens all the time. Um, in the UK, certainly maybe elsewhere. So you, you do actually make it to university, you have a chance maybe to go to Oxford, you end up going to St Andrews in, in Edinburgh. What, what Again, what strikes me, and maybe I lived outside the UK now for far too long, is the level of snobbery, not just the kind of adult level, you know, the people, middle-aged people, <coughs> but amongst your peer group, amongst um, girls, young, you know, fellow students, who, who treated you with extraordinary snobbishness and condescension, no? Yeah, not everybody did, obviously, but there were enough people to really kind of leave a mark. And I was shocked myself. You know, I mean, there's one episode or account in the book by um, um, a woman, a girl from Cheltenham Ladies College. And, you oh, know, yes. for those of us in the UK, Cheltenham Ladies College is really a storied place. It couldn't be more different from Bishop Barrington Comprehensive School where I went. 
you know, and even I, who, you know, kind of was not really very familiar with the names of most of the private schools in um, the UK. I mean, I'd heard of Cheltenham Ladies College, everybody had. And, you know, it was, it was famous, you know, for, yeah. you know, all kinds of, you know, women who had made their mark coming out of it. And, you know, I'm in a French class at St. Andrews and I was always terrified, you know, every time I was just terrified of failure, imposter syndrome. I've never actually quite shaken it off, imposter syndrome. And so I spent forever in the library, you know, looking up every um, book possible, reading hard, you know, uh, studying. And somehow out of all of this hard work, I turned in the very best essay on uh, the book of the week in the seminar. And the professor made a big point of, calling it out and reading passages from it and these are all handwritten so i'm surprised you could even read my, my handwritten because this is like the dark stone ages before we had typewriters and you know, yeah. computers. but you know and, and it was a very small seminar group and he then got called out for a phone call and miss cheltenham ladies college as they call her in the book i do remember her name because it's seared in my memory uh basically turns to me and said so how did you do that you're a common northerner did you sleep with you know the, the yeah, professor, the professor and, I like, what? Yeah. and i was so shocked i mean i wanted to slap her first of all, which I restrained myself, you know, with kind of great effort because I couldn't believe that she'd said that. I was so insulted and offended. And then in my mind, I was thinking how unfair I'd spent all of these hours in the library. You know, I hadn't even slept, let alone sleeping with the professor. I mean, it's just like I had put in so much hard work and there's somebody just immediately denigrating me on the base of my accent and on the fact that I've gone to a comprehensive school and can't believe and it said more about her than anyone else. Yeah. You know, and the, and the insecurities of people who expect everyone to be like themselves yeah. and have come from the same background but it was just indicative of the kinds of obstacles that were there for you know kids from underprivileged backgrounds you know working class you know from different parts of the country that are not inside of london or the kind of elite circles to kind of keep making it into uh, these uh, institutions at that particular time yeah. but again not everybody treated me like that but it was sufficient to those things to sear it in your mind and think wow this isn't going to be that easy i've made it to this far but it's still going to be really difficult you know, to not just prove myself, but just to kind of even, you know, stay here because of that so off-putting. You know, I immediately thought, well, maybe I should just go home. I mean, this is not for me, but, you know, I quickly got over that and just thought, okay, I'm not going to let them, you know, basically put me off. I'm going to, I'm going to keep on persevering here. It's like a precursor of the show Mean Girls all those years ago. Um, it's funny you mentioned uh, imposter syndrome because I, I don't know about you, but I think a lot of people from working class, poor backgrounds who do well, like you and you're one of many examples, they, no matter how, what level of success they attain, they, they, in the back of their mind, they still have this kind of imposter syndrome, whereas more well-off middle-class kids who maybe do less well academically, they kind of think that, well, the world's their oyster and they, any position of authority or success they, they eventually occupy is a natural thing that should happen anyway. Do you agree? Yeah, that's, that? that's absolutely right. I mean, I'm always kind of surprised when I get the job or, you know, kind of, I, you know, get the book contract or something like this, because I kind of feel that, you know, somebody um, along the way is going to go, hey, hey, I know who you are. <laughs> you, you shouldn't be doing this. Get back, you know, kind of to your place. Yeah, as you say in the book, you should be making the tea or typing up a press release or something, a little, a little vignette in the book that people have to read by and then read to find out more about. We should move on. I'm, I'm, I'm keeping you back a bit. So without being too simplistic, you talk about the big issue, of course, in the UK is essentially class. Uh, and when you move to the States to pursue your career there, first at Harvard and then, of course, in the think tank world, then in, in, in politics, in, in the administrations you served in, it's more a question of race. Uh, but the one issue which straddles the two countries and maybe other parts of the world is also gender. So you, since you were a 
without being too dramatic and too emotional, you were a victim of, of, of snobbery. I think I said snobbery, maybe it's more snobbery, but also you were a victim of, of gender bias as well. Right, exactly. I mean, there's all the classic, you know, harassment that, you know, kind of people, you know, think about really from, you know, sort of an early age onwards. But the biases that I then encountered later on, I hadn't entirely expected. So, for example, you know, one part of the book, I talk about the um, wage differential. And a lot of women, you know, earlier on didn't talk about this because it was actually a sort of a source of embarrassment as well as resentment and kind of finding usually late to the game that they were being grossly underpaid vis-a-vis male counterparts who had the same qualifications and, you know, doing the same job. And coming from a working class background at first, you know, I kind of thought that all the, um, the wages were transparent because, you know, the kind of jobs that I'd previously had, it was a fixed wage, you know, kind of for that job, whether you were male or female, you know, working in a restaurant or, a, you know, kind of a bar or cleaning in a hospital. I mean, you know, a lot of these jobs were mostly from women, but, the, you know, the, the, the wages were pretty standard. When I cleaned in the local hospital, as I, you know, talked to the job, I was actually making the same wage as my dad about on an hour because mm-hmm. my dad was a porter at that point, you know, having the mines closed and all of the hospital porters tend to be ex-miners. And that was weird for me, actually, at first. And I thought, well, that's strange. But then at the same time, that seemed to be, you know, it captured this was transparent pay. Of course, I get into the professional world and discovered, oh, anything but that. So I was immediately um, cognizant of these discrepancies. And you talk about this in the book about, you know, other women, older women telling me about it. But for the main part, you know, women finding themselves, particularly until 2009 in the United States, when there's this act passed through Congress, enabling, you know, women to sue on sort of dispute um, wage discrepancies when they find out about them, no matter when they find out about them, even if they've been ongoing for decades. Um, that's kind of a turning point. But up until then, you know, you're really kind of at accumulating these wage arrears in many respects. And I'd calculated them myself, and there's lots of studies showing the same thing, that, you know, basically on average, women in these professional positions were making $20,000 a year less than male counterparts. You know, a lot of it's saying, well, you're, you're not the primary breadwinner. Well, a single woman is the primary breadwinner, either for themselves and often for their families, you know, with single mothers. And, you know, I talk about that a lot in the book. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's just um, it's something that a lot of women know, but there's, uh, you know, it's not always openly talked about. I mean, the United Kingdom and, you know, under the European Union, there was a lot more focus on this, mm. actually, to get rid of this, you know, in, a, in the larger legal framework. You know, so this is, these were sort of some of the advances, but the United States didn't have that, you know, for well, many years. You say uh, on page 55 of the book, <laughs> <laughs> uh, being a woman in the think tank and the, secu- uh, the national security arena brought additional layers of unanticipated and unpleasant discrimination of the kind that often pushes women out of the very places and careers that they have struggled and trained to get access to. And you go on to say harassment was, was uh, normalized by everyone around you that, that's quite extraordinary without again without sounding naive you would have thought maybe in an academic think tank world people would kind of quote unquote behave better clearly not yeah over, over time absolutely they have i mean this is you know kind of fairly early on and i mean look um in the united kingdom right now um after you know these terrible murders of um young women walking home at night or walking to you know visit friends in london and elsewhere there's been all these surveys and polling, you know, um, unearthing the fact that a majority of women in uh, the United Kingdom um, have uh, suffered from harassment. And certainly when I was growing up in the UK, it was completely normalised. I mean, just think about, you know, holiday postcards from the seaside would often feature an old man in in a raincoat flashing at, you know, elderly women, you know, drawn and rendered in some sort of comic fashion, you know, nice to see you by the sea kind of thing. 
And you know that that that's that's preposterous. It was always the kind of feature of you know, Benny Hill and you know kind of the yeah. sort of Carry On movies. But that's that's the sexual you know, harassment and intimidation of women, and you know the idea that you know old ladies like to be flashed out by the sea or young girls and you know kind of with this sort of mock horror on their face. No, they didn't, and, and nobody's like that. They just made fun of it because it was normalised. And then as you get on, that became, takes on these you know more sophisticated you know kind of forms or more insidious forms. You know, I talk in the book about you know some of those incidents, but I didn't want to make too much of it in the book because then it would become a distraction. Yeah. And, you know, the thing is yeah. that as you go on, you know, a lot of people have been pushing back against all of this. A lot of women can recount untold stories. But I do think it is changing. But I mean, I think, you know, women, younger women, we have to have these cross-generational, you know, women's efforts to push back against this. And again, it's not a majority of men. It's just that it, it, it basically seemed to be the norm, and certainly in some political circles. And also, you know, kind of in a university setting where so many professors end up marrying their research assistants, it's usually men, you know, marrying their female research assistants, you know, all the stories of kind of harassment of people by their advisors, you know, we, we have all of these stories out there. And, you know, obviously, this is going kind to of something that women, but also men are pushing back against and, and changing. But it was shocking to me about how long that persisted. I want to talk, we have to talk, if you don't mind, we haven't done it before, but now, since you talk about it in the book, I think it's now a good moment about your time, obviously working in the Trump administration. Um, uh, you say in the book, uh, in, a, in a chapter entitled Russia Bitch, we, we may come to in a second, you say, I quote, I did not join Donald Trump's National Security Council for the glamour or thrill of working at the White House. I wanted to serve my country because you're now an American citizen and I have felt I had something to offer. But in retrospect, I was naive about US politics and how much it was possible or not possible to get done in such a highly charged environment after 2016 election. You must have had quite a lot of grief and, and, and criticism from your friends and uh, uh, other people when you took the job in the first week. Now, with the, now the time has moved on a bit are you are you able to talk a bit more about your decision and whether you have any at the time and whether you have any regrets for two years three years down the line i have no regrets about doing it. i'd make the same decision again even knowing what i know because you know i i was really you know pushed to try to do something about what has happened in 2016 uh with the russian intervention and big influence operation in the u.s presidential election and i'd been the national intelligence officer for russia and eurasia previously through the end of the Bush administration to the Obama administration, a lot of the people that I'd worked with in National Intelligence Council and the, the Office of the Director of National Intelligence were still in the government behind the scenes. Um, I, you know, continued to talk to people about what was happening. I initially thought that I might be able to give some advice to some of the people who'd reached out to me who were going into the administration. A lot of them were, although they were political appointees, were coming from the, the normal, you know, Republican apparatus, you know, not just from the campaign, but by strange coincidence, I'd actually met two of the people in Trump's campaign. One, when I was at the DNI, um, this General Flynn, who was my counterpart at the chairman's office, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and was a very different person then from what, you know, he appeared in the political context, you know, decade or so later. And another was Katie McFarland, um, who ended up being the Deputy National Security Advisor. She was a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. She'd been through previous Republican administrations. I'd uh, appeared on her Fox News show, which is online streaming, you know, about my book on Putin, you know, and I'd had all these interactions with her in these, you know, professional settings. And, you know, she'd reached out to me, you know, for some um, general advice on, you know, how to handle some of the issues. 
don't think it was all necessarily taken. But then they suddenly asked me if I would actually consider coming in. And a lot of people who had been appointed, you know, behind the scenes were people I'd worked with previously. And so I really thought that, okay, national security is of the uppermost. Everyone gets it that we've got to do something about this Russia problem. Mm. And as I said, I did not fully appreciate what the swirl was like around Trump himself. I mean, I thought a lot of this was performance uh, during the campaign. I discovered incredibly quickly, first few days, that actually the public-private thing is exactly the same. It's all performance all the time. And he did not care about the national security aspects at all. And some of the people around him didn't either. That wasn't the case with the cabinet members and most of the people in the administration. But it's just that whole churn. And then, of course, what had happened in 2016 uh, had created a firestorm. And, you know, a lot of people said to me, don't go in, you'll get tainted by this, or you'll be aiding and abetting a criminal enterprise because they believe firmly that Putin had tipped the scales and that Donald Trump was elected by Putin rather than, you know, elected by American voters. So there was all that, uh, you know, the people saying it, this guy is Mussolini, you know, he's a, he's a fascist, you know, if you're going in there, you're serving, you know, this, in, this, this dreadful individual. And that in itself encapsulated me kind of part of the problem because the American presidency has morphed over time away from an executive branch to the person of the president, yeah. which is completely antithetical to, you know, what the whole of American democracy is supposed to be about. You're supposed to have checks and balance in the system. You have the legislative branch, you know, etc. cetera. You're supposed to be serving the country. This is public service, not serving one guy. It was a cult and a family business, right? Exactly. That's exactly what it was. And I kind of thought like, okay, but look, the rest of the whole government is there. I completely accept this. I never forgot what they told me, you know, so I was always, you know, on my guard on that regard. But I didn't fully appreciate just how dirty American politics had become. Now, you know, a lot of people say what's well, been like that for rather a long time, but it really became encapsulated, you know, in this person of Trump, all of the problems and the flaws of uh, the American political system. And well, I saw that close up. Well, a quick question. We're going to move on because we're running out of time, unfortunately. Not your day job, but do you predict or could you see circumstances in which Trump could come back in a couple of years? Absolutely. I mean, he hasn't gone away. Um, from his point of view, he's still the legitimate president. He keeps telling everybody that. I mean, there's even this you know, argument going on in the United uh, States right now about the January 6th commission looking into the circumstances of the mob storming the Capitol building January 6th of this year. And, you know, so it's still in, in yeah. um, recent memory, but you'd think yeah. it had happened, you know, way back in the past. Oh, yeah. And this is some sort of historical inquiry or something. And, you know, some of the people who are refusing to be subpoenaed um, or refusing to, um, uh, you know, basically step up as a result of the subpoena, I mean, they are being subpoenaed, are basically claiming executive privilege, you know, perhaps under the theory that Trump is still the president, you know, so that they they don't want to testify before Congress. So Trump is already bucking congressional oversight, the checks and the balances in the system. He's got a, a group of loyalists around him. There's no ideology anymore. This has become a personality cult. The, you know, the whole idea of the Republican Party has gone out the window. Trump himself says there is no congressional Republican Party. There's just the party of me, Donald Trump. So uh, everybody has to um, adhere um, to him with, you know, acts of fealty. They're not allowed to admit that uh, Joe Biden uh, won the election. They're not allowed to repudiate all the false claims. Everything's around a big lie. And they're actively out there trying to redistrict, um, you know, all these um, constituencies so that they'll, you know, stagger um, or rather kind of skew the uh, electoral outcome in, you know, the kind of the favour of Trump. Uh, everything is being looked at at the local and state level as a referendum on Trump himself, a kind of national politics, instead of, you know, basically voting for your own local congressperson as a representative of you. It's all about Trump. And there's efforts to suppress the vote. 
um, you know, stop people, you know, from uh, voting entirely. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think redistricting so that people's votes don't count as much. Uh, trying to remove the impartial, objective oversight over elections or uh, independent-minded electoral officers, uh, the state secretaries who oversee all of this. I mean, this is the hallmarks of things that we've seen in so many other countries, you know, uh, trying to influence the courts and the judicial system, etc., with all of these questions about the uh, validity of the uh, electoral votes of the, of, the, of the outcome of all the elections, to throw them into question, have all these court cases, even if they show there was no election fraud. So they're kind of talking down the whole democratic system. The United States was watching this happen in the United Kingdom, say, for example, or any pick your European country. And we have, you know, worried in the past about things in Poland and Hungary. Yeah. You know, there'd be massive alarm, but it's happening at home and people are alarmed. So I would just sort of say, you know, please, hey, Europeans who are listening, can you come and mediate? You know, we need an intervention here. I mean, you would be intervening if this, you know, were happening somewhere else. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't mean intervening like, you know, kind of sending employees, you know, I mean, you know, kind of a political intervention, you know, kind of we need some help right now because there's a vast swath of the population who just can't see what's happening. And I think, you know, from European history and even, you know, contemporary European context, it's quite obvious what's happening. That's why in the book I put the spotlight on Russia, because at least, you know, kind of yeah. lots of Americans, it's more about getting Americans to pay attention than I'm sure the Russians are all in, up in arms if I've been writing this, but to get Americans to pay attention to what's happening in the United States. And he doesn't want to put the state back. He wants to dismantle it. But he does want to be the autocrat. And that's what Putin has become over 21 years in Russia. You know, people around Putin say there's no Russia without Putin. He still rules through the state. And actually, there's a lot more competence in the state, you know, than, you know, he's often given credit for. It's not just the corrupt kleptocratic clique around Putin that we all like to talk about all the time, because there is the state and the state functions. And you've got, you know, the foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, who's been the foreign minister forever. And he you know, was in the United Nations before. Really great diplomats and, you know, other state functionaries who were there. Trump, on the other hand, wants to dismantle all of this in the US. And he wants to run, you know, like you referenced before, the United States out of, you know, his little family network inside of uh, the Oval Office, just like he ran his family business and, you know, to hell with the state, Congress and, you know, you name it. So, you know, there isn't the direct corrupt, but you see in the kind of autocratic tendencies and Trump really admires Putin. He admires Putin because, you know, as he puts it, he's a badass. He thinks he's super rich, super powerful, super famous. Mm. You know, all the things about Putin are for him super. It's not about Russia. It's about, you know, he looks into Putin's eyes and instead of, you know, seeing his soul, as um, Bush said, or seeing KGB, 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 as Dick Cheney and Colin Powell said, you know, back in the day, he sees himself. I mean, Trump's just, you know, seeing a reflection of the person that he wants to be, which is super rich, super powerful and super famous. And, and I, come- I know that sounds harsh, but I saw that with my own eyes. And you think he wants to come back and carry on the agenda when he can? Absolutely, he does. No, he wants to carry on himself. I mean, he yeah, really does right. see the sort of the presidency as his. Right. And it's, you know, talked about in sort of almost monarchical terms. He sees himself as the king. Okay. And he's in Mar-a-Lago in his summer palace or his winter palace right now, you know, kind of plotting his return. Right. We covered a lot of ground, but we have to leave it there. Fiona Hill, thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Paul. It's great to talk to you today.